1: Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa.
0: Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing so good this week. Yeah? How about you? <laughs> I'm good. I feel like we're both extra salty, We saucy. are.
1: We are. I don't know what it is. For one thing, I'm hangry at the moment, and for two things, I'm just really busy. I have a company coming, so this week has been spent just going crazy, getting your house ready for company. So I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate
0: to that. I'm currently wearing a robe on top of exercise clothes that I did not exercise in. That sums up my entire life right there. This is like as per usual in my life. So nothing's changed. It's all same stuff, different week. Um, Before we get started this week, we we actually got some news this week that was – Super upsetting and difficult to take in. Um, but we had a um, an email from one of our listeners, Hannah, in regards to her sister, Lillian. And Lillian was a huge part of our Facebook group. Super funny. Um, she was – I somehow, like, communicated with her in the reality TV uh, group. And one of those people that's just really funny, witty, like, on top of their game – on everything, um, so she became a big part of our Facebook group. She was like one of the big contributors and always had like a toddlers and Tiara gift. I just loved it. Um, so her sister wrote to us to tell her, tell us actually that um, unfortunately Lillian passed away last Friday and due to complications with pneumonia. And she uh, was just like a really bright light, funny, awesome person. Somebody you wish you knew in real life, IRL, as the young ones say. But. Um, just had a really sweet spirit about her. And she was a mom of three kids, was married to a law enforcement officer. He actually wrote several books that I want to uh, read. But um, we're going to put the link to the GoFundMe into our show notes. It feels like we have such a nice little community and people in our Facebook group were very quick to get on and and give. And, um, you know, we just really want the family to feel loved. And it's so weird and podcast communities and stuff. And you just feel like you have this connection to somebody just based on, you know, similar interests. So we're thinking of her family and, um, you know, this has obviously been a very rough week for them. It hit us really hard. And so I can't even imagine how her family is feeling and just thinking of her sweet kids and her husband and mom and her sister, Hannah. So, um, we'll put, add that to our show notes, but just wanted to share that with you guys this week. So look for that link in
1: our show notes and uh, to Lillian's family, just know that we are thinking of you and we have you in our hearts. So before we get into this week's episode, we want to take a quick break for a word from today's sponsor.
0: It's been a while since I've had a baby of my own and some days I miss it so much. The baby cuddles and baby smiles, but when it comes to diaper rashes, not so much. I remember the first time my oldest had a diaper rash, I was really devastated
1: Pull-Up Skin Essentials has got your big kid covered, too, with a training pant that's ultra-soft and breathable to help protect sensitive skin throughout potty training. Whether you're a first-time parent or a seasoned pro, make it easy on yourself and your baby with Huggies. Learn more at Huggies.com. Once again, head to Huggies.com to learn more.
0: Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing Dash Pass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With Dash Pass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between,
1: Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Today we are diving into an unusual case, and the reason that it's unusual is because it involves the murder of two sisters on the same day. Their names were Mona King and Carla Cannon, and they grew up on a farm in Kansas, although they lived in Colorado Springs at the time of their deaths. Aside from sharing some of the same DNA, Mona and Carla couldn't have been any more different. Mona was the younger of the two sisters, and those who knew her would describe her as wholesome. She was a devoted wife to Ray King. She loved her church, and although she had a career in real estate, she really enjoyed being a homemaker and a mother to her five-year-old daughter, Tara. She was quiet, reserved, and conservative. Carla, the eldest sister, was more of an outgoing party type who loved the nightlife and frequented bars for dancing and drinks. Carla had recently divorced from her husband and moved in with Mona and Ray while she figured her life out. Once a stay-at-home mom to her two children, who were teenagers at the time, Carla began working at a local hospital which specialized in psychiatry.
0: So I'm super excited about this episode because we kind of got our sourcing a little differently. There's no Dateline, 2020s, anything like that. This was a Homicide Hunter-inspired episode. And
1: you only just need to say two words, Melissa. Melissa. Joe
0: Kenda. <laughs> Three words really Mandy. Joe freaking Kenda. There you go. <laughs> so I know blue eyes is re- is reserved for Frank Sinatra, but really, after watching Joe Kenda talk about homicide with those sparkly blue eyes, I feel like I feel like we could pass the name on, right? He's been dead I long enough. I disagree. That's all
1: you just. I completely disagree. Frank Sinatra is like one of my true loves in life. So no, you can't just take his nickname.
0: Let your husband know about that. (laughs) (laughs) So when Carla moved in with Mona and Ray, she began encouraging her sister to go out and enjoy life more. It seems like a little bit of a YOLO situation. Well, it also
1: seemed like the older sister just was badgering her younger sister just the way siblings do like your life
0: is boring my life is better like kind of thing (laughs) in my case i'm the older more boring one so (laughs) this is not true to life so she felt that mona's life was too boring and that she should spend her time doing more exciting things shortly after carla moved in mona and ray began having marital problems which eventually led to ray moving out of their home and in with his brother robert so robert's Living situation was a little strange. A little strange. (laughs) So Robert was living in a home that belonged to a man named Herbert Ritchie. He was actually house-sitting for Herbert Ritchie. Question one, how long was this man gone? Right. (laughs) Right. How do you... How is that your address if you're just house sitting?
1: I don't understand. Is this like
0: a snowbird situation because I Possibly. still don't understand that. Do you have to pay electricity in both places? You're paying taxes in both places. Which one's your primary residence? Where do you vote? I is mean, this where is voter Colorado, fraud happens? So maybe the owner was like here in Florida at the time. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. But so Robert's living with at Herbert Ritchie's home. I feel like this is like a little bit of a um Oh gosh, I can just picture a Tom Cruise situation and sliding on your socks. Like, if I was <laughs> there's no way to house sit a house even as an adult and not like want to take advantage of all the things you can take advantage of. This house from the never staying at my house. Don't <laughs> let me. I will take advantage of everything. I'll be swimming all the time. I'll kick your animals out. I'll just be in a <laughs> really good. Life. This is why you're not invited to stay at my house. <laughs> Thank you. Um the couple was actually sharing custody of their daughter during this time. While Ray was living with Robert, who sort of had a home. <laughs> on March 25th, 1985, Mona's father-in-law, Cecil King, became alarmed when his son Ray failed to pick Tara, the child, up from him to take her back to Mona's house. There are a lot of names involved in this, <laughs> in this story. He tried calling Mona, but got no answer. And when she failed to return the calls, he decided to drive over to her home and check on her. When Cecil arrived and knocked on the door, all was quiet. He started looking through the windows in the home, and initially he didn't see anything. But when he looked through a window in the back part of the house, he saw the shocking sight of a woman's body lying on the kitchen floor. He immediately ran to a neighbor's house to dial 911. So in these homicide hunters, they do reenactments, and they are
1: very dramatic. It's it's top-of-the-line acting.
0: Tell me, did... Cecil King, the father-in-law, did he look a little like Dennis Rader slash BTK to you? The actor that was playing him? The actor that was playing him looked just like BTK. I definitely was like, well, this guy killed everybody and he's going to (laughs) kill everyone else on screen. So they kind of like just tricked me into that.
1: So the chief investigator, Larry Martin, responded to the scene first. Once inside the home, he realized that there were actually two women who had been shot. Detective Joe Kenda was then called to aid in the investigation. When he arrived, he found the body of Carla Cannon on the kitchen floor. She had sustained five gunshot wounds to the head and chest, and there was what appeared to be a cowboy boot-shaped shoe print uh, near the body. It was a bloody shoe print. As Detective Kenda made his way through the home, he found the second victim, Mona, lying on the living room floor near the front door. She had also suffered multiple gunshot wounds to the head and chest. She had seven. And she had her purse over her left arm, a jacket in her right hand, and her keys were laying just inches away from her hand where she had fallen to the ground. So based on the position of Mona's body, the detectives believed that she had been shot right when she entered through the front door. There was some question, uh, was she coming or going? But I guess because her head was like positioned inside the home and her feet were like towards the door they figured that she was actually coming in right. when she was shot. So based on the preliminary findings, the detectives thought that the women had been killed between 1.30 and 8.30 p.m., which is kind of a big window.
0: Big gap there.
1: Yeah, because— Lots of things happened in seven yeah, hours. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Detective Kenda noted that it was unusual for multiple people of the same family to be murdered at the same time and wondered whether one of them may have been the intended target and the other one could have just been a victim of circumstance, being in, in the wrong place at the wrong time. So this question would become the focus of the investigation. Who was the intended target? And obviously you need to know that if you're gonna figure out where what direction to go to look where do for. Where you who, go next? Yeah. It.
0: As Joe Kinda began to search the home for any obvious evidence, he noticed that there were twelve empty bullet casings in a neat little pile on top of a stereo console that was in the living room. And this was not far from where Mona's body was laying. What is a stereo console, Melissa? So old timey <laughs> things. There would just be like these giant stereo. Like you didn't have surround sound. Why are you making me? Because I'm old. I guess. <laughs> I
1: just wanted to see you try to answer it because I didn't know what it
0: was. Okay, <laughs> this is starting to sting a little. But you know, like my parents used to have a really big like tape deck. Oh gosh, um, stereo. What's a tape deck? <laughs> Shut up. You're gonna have to watch a YouTube video. <laughs> um, so, uh, no, you just have like your stereos side by side, and they'd be huge, like the big giant box things. They were humongous. So you could almost use it as a coffee stand, but I don't drink coffee. So this is not an issue for me. He knew the only way the empty casings could have been placed in a pile together was if the weapon used was a revolver. Because when a bullet's fired from a semi-automatic pistol, the casings are ejected and they just kind of fly all over the place. The casings from bullets used in a revolver remain in the chamber until the gun operator manually empties them to reload new rounds into the chamber. So as you're reloading, or I'm sorry, as you're unloading, you're adding new ones. So it's easy to kind of take them in your hand, set them down. Because you can just flip it over and just dump them all out at one time into your hand. Right. And so
1: they're saying that he had done, the killer had done that and then just set the handful of empty
0: casings on top of this cabinet super dumb killer because yeah Yeah, why would you do that now like you hear about a killing and they're like there's one casing found well that's because it shot somewhere and nobody could find it this dummy puts them all in a pile like (laughs) here they are (laughs) like they might as well have one of those like little yellow table things that has like police evidence a and just like left it there He noted that the bullets used were twenty-two caliber, which is not a common size for modern revolvers, but was commonly seen in guns made in the nineteen fifties and sixties. Detective Kenda believed that based on the number of shots fired and the number of casings found, there must have been two weapons involved in the shootings. It's so
1: neat how you can like figure all that out based on like, you know, just seeing like this pile of casings, he's like, it was revolvers, there was two of them, you know. It's a game of clue all over yeah, again. Yeah,
0: seriously. <laughs> yeah, no, and I was looking at like Detective Kinda stats. He solved when he was a homicide detective ninety two percent of the homicides he's involved in. That's an insane number to have. I don't know. He just seemed like a beautiful mind when he was. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I one thing I learned, you know, when we were researching this or looking through this, Mandy does the bulk of our research. Obviously, I don't have that kind of brain for this, but I can look up little small details I <laughs> go along. Fun facts, if you will. And um, he refuses to read a script whenever he does homicide hunters. which you would think he was like reading a script, except there's a sparkle in his eye when he knows he says something really like <laughs> extra, you know, good for the listeners. So I thought that was kind of a fun a fun fact. Aside from the pile of casings, there weren't many other details that would indicate why these shootings took place. There were no signs of forced entry, and there was cash and other valuables left untouched throughout the home. Detective Kenda concluded that the only purpose that the suspect had for entering this home was to kill these women, or at least one of them.
1: So the detectives, of course, wanted to question the neighbors, but they found out that most of them knew nothing, which um, Detective Kenda said was pretty common when talking to neighbors when you're investigating a crime. Oh, so many looky-loos. They do. Or the ones that you do talk to, they like want to pretend like they know something or they might know something or, you know, but typically he said it's just they don't know anything. Yeah. So, <laughs> So one of the neighbors said that she remembered seeing a white van parked at the residence the day before the bodies were found, while another neighbor claimed to have seen a blue pickup truck sitting in the driveway on the day of the murders. So they spoke to a potential third witness named Wayne Lewis, but after further discussion, they determined that he was probably just a concerned friend of the victims that didn't really have any valuable information. He kind of approached the police on his own and was asking, you know, what had happened and if it was true and um, just said that he was a really good friend of the victims. So he didn't really know anything. He just wanted to get more information. Since Mona's father-in-law, Cecil, was the one who dialed 911, the detectives were anxious to speak with him. They asked him more about his son and learned that he was an electrician for a commercial electrical company that thought highly of him. Cecil said that Ray had been on vacation for the last two weeks, but that he had never had a problem with the law. And of course, it's his son and is telling police that, of course, he had nothing to do with this. Right. Police verified that Ray had a squeaky clean record without so much as a parking ticket that he owned no guns. And they felt that he really did not fit the mold as a suspect. Since they knew that Mona, who was, of course, the one married to Ray, was more of a homebody, they believed that they needed to further look into Carla's personal life, and maybe they would find some clues there. Cecil told the detective that he knew Carla was recently divorced and had been living with his son and daughter-in-law. Her husband was a chiropractor named Dr. Donald Cannon, and the couple had been married for 20 years before, quote, unquote, falling out of love with each other. That's such a...
0: (laughs) It reminds me of the
1: air supply song, I'm all out of love. (laughs) So Carla and Donald had different ideas of fun. As we said before, Carla liked to go out and have a good time and kick up her heels and, you know, do all those things. And her husband was more conservative and didn't really want to do those types of things. He preferred to stay at home. And they fought over that quite a bit. And um, it was just a point of contention in their marriage and, and probably what ended up leading to their divorce, if I had to speculate. Um, which apparently you just did. (laughs) did. Yes, I did. (laughs) Detectives traveled 300 miles to Grand Junction, Colorado to find Donald. And when they caught up with him, he was angry. He told the police that he hadn't wanted the divorce in the first place and said that the divorce was really messy and not exactly amicable.
0: Great things to just come out with to the police. I mean, it's good that you're being honest. But did
1: you say all that before or after they told you that she had been (laughs) murdered? Because I feel like you might want to just pump the brakes on what you're going to say.
0: (laughs) Just just slide back just a little bit. Like, let's show some compassion. Let's try not to make (laughs) ourselves a suspect, please. So as it would turn out,
1: Donald had an airtight alibi. And he had been in Salt Lake City that weekend on a work trip and had spent that Sunday flying back home. The detectives obtained the airline records and confirmed that Donald was on a plane in the air at the time of the murders, and so they were really back to
0: square one. Detective Kinda was still not convinced that Carla's personal life wasn't somehow the cause of the murders, and he wanted to continue to investigate that possibility. He and another detective visited the Central Station Nightclub, a country bar with a two-star Yelp rating. I actually looked that up just for this. I did, (laughs) too. I decided to read some of those Yelp ratings to see what kind of... What kind of establishment this was? Oh, are we going to get to hear some? I got one. All right. Um, this is from Deborah from 2014. Deborah writes, every time I visit, I'm optimistic. Every time I leave, I am disappointed. <laughs> Poor Deborah. <laughs> I know. 60s plus crowd with no top 100 chart music. Sad, sad, sad. <laughs> that is sad. <laughs> Probably won't return on future trips to the queue. What is the (laughs) cue? This is a Colorado thing. I must concur with the current ratings on Yelp and recommend just closing the door. Congratulations, Deborah! You got your wish and they are no longer in business. They're not? No, she took them down. One Yelp (laughs) review. (laughs) Destroyed them. (laughs) This is not the point of this, but I was super excited (laughs) to read a Yelp rating. I've never gotten to read one on here before. I had to download the app and everything to be able to read the entire thing. It's a whole situation. You could
1: have just Googled it on a computer.
0: Do you think I want to get up and get to a laptop and have <laughs> to do that when I have a phone? Why do you think I have a phone? And I can use my fingerprint to just get an <laughs> app? Steve Jobs would be very disappointed in you. The officer spoke with the bartender at the country bar with a two-year, two-star Yelp review and asked if he knew a woman named Carla Cannon. He told them that he did know her and that she was a regular at the bar. He then pointed to a man sitting at the end of the bar and said that he had been talking to Carla the night before she was murdered. That felt very law and order like, oh, you just happened to be here. Right, on that day. Yeah. I get it if maybe he
1: just spent a lot of time at the bar, which some people do, but um, it just seemed very – like it lined up perfectly. Like they walked in and they're like, do you know this lady? And he's like, yeah, actually that guy down there. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Like he was with her last night. Like that's just perfect – movie like
0: scene. Like it just didn't even seem like reality. Juicy Joe was very excited about (laughs) it, But I realized I can't call him Juicy Joe because you don't watch Real Housewives. And that's also very uh, creepy of a nickname. Juicy Joe? I think it's a fantastic name for blue eyes.
1: that says juicy is not for me.
0: (laughs) But Juicy Joe on Real Housewives, he's in the Juicy Slammer right now. But I don't feel like I can steal that name. We need a kind of nickname. Somebody send us a nickname for Joe Kenda. You're trying so hard in this episode to come up with one. <laughs> I'm taking it from dead people and people in prison. I don't know what to do. <laughs> Once you go to prison or you die, you relinquish all rights to that name. The prince
1: According Michael to who, you? The king of rock and roll,
0: <laughs> guess what? Michael Jackson dead. You lose that. Somebody else can be the king now. <laughs> Give it to somebody else. I'm not holding names for you anymore. You're dead, you're gone, it's over. The man, Jerry Norberg, was in his mid-30s and also a regular at Central Station. He wore Western clothing, including a pair of cowboy boots, which caught the detective's attention considering that they had seen what appeared to be a bloody boot print at the crime scene. He told them that he had tried to strike up a conversation with Carla on that Saturday night, but that she had given him the cold shoulder. He said that he was interested in Carla and thought that she was a, quote, pretty hot chick, but that she wasn't interested in him. Poor man, story projection. Although his story seemed suspicious on the exterior, Detective Kenda didn't feel that he said anything alarming and his behavior was completely relaxed and normal. He didn't feel that Jerry had committed the murders, but he was intrigued by something that Jerry said towards the end of their conversation. He said, I hate to hear about them. Carla and Mona were very nice ladies. Detective Kenda was surprised to hear Jerry mention Mona and he asked if and how he knew her too. Jerry said that Mona had been coming into the bar with Carla, a piece of information that surprised the detectives and would change the course of the investigation. Mona hadn't just been there watching her sister have fun. She was there doing the same things, drinking, dancing with men. Did Mona have a secret life? (laughs) Thank you, Mandy, for allowing me to say that. That was super fun. I just worded it that way just for you. Thank you.
1: In light of this new information, the detective set up an interview with Mona's best friend, Suzanne Conway. She told them that Mona had been feeling bored and lonely with Ray working all the time and having little activity in her life. She didn't have anyone in the neighborhood to hang out with, and she wanted to bring more excitement into her day-to-day routine. Don't we all?
0: I know. Although, I'm team Dr. Donald because, like, (laughs) let me just be home. You want to do something? You're about that doctor's wife life? I'm about to not doing anything. (laughs) Where can I sign up for the not doing anything life?
1: She had tried to talk to Ray about going out and having fun just like Carla, but Ray wasn't interested in any of that. And Mona could not seem to get through to him and communicate with him. So Suzanne speculated that Mona may have felt some degree of envy for Carla's freedom and that the sisters began going out a lot together, which is what eventually led to Mona and Ray's marital dysfunction, if you will. She said that the couple separated soon after Mona began spending nights at bars with Carla. We got to
0: see reenactments of this. Yes. This was amazing. <laughs> this was lots of hair spinning. Did you see one of them grab their hair and kind of just kept flipping it into somebody's face? No. <laughs> Is that something that people are into? Somebody dancing in front of you, just blinding you with like their Whipping split their hair? Ends? Yeah. yeah. Another Real Housewives reference, Mandy, Kyle – and I'm going to link this in our show notes – Kyle with Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, she takes her hair in a high ponytail and whips it around. (laughs) Like – and she does splits. And it's (laughs) – and she is uh, Paris Hilton's aunt. There's a lot going on. You're missing out on so much in your life, Mandy, by going out and doing things. You are
1: just so close to converting me to reality TV. I'm Um, excited right now. I feel like it's happening. Very slowly, but just, I'm I'm almost there. I feel like you're saying that, so I'll shut up. (laughs) Maybe not, though. (laughs) (laughs) So Suzanne told the officers that Mona had met another man and had been spending a lot of time getting to know him. His name, she said, was Wayne Lewis. Dun, 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 dun. (laughs) And that should sound familiar, because he was the man who came forward with concern after the women were found dead. So... I'm sure that really made the detective's ears perk up when they were like, what did you say his name was? They thought he was just a, a nothing, but now he was a big nothing burger. <laughs> <laughs> but now they're finding out there might have been something more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Suzanne said that she knew Wayne drove a white van that was possibly a company vehicle that had no words on it, which also seemed to fit with what the neighbor said that they saw that weekend. So their focus, of course, turned to Wayne, and he was brought in for questioning. Wayne's not looking like
0: he's in a very good spot right now. I would hate to be in Wayne's world right now. (laughs) That was a good joke, Melissa. I know. I'm super proud of myself. This is a problem. But all of my references are literally from, like, the 80s. Like, somebody froze me in time. But it's perfect because this case is from the 80s. I know. It's like amazing. Wayne insisted that he and Mona were nothing more than friends. He said that he knew about her marital issues and that she began talking to him a lot about her personal life. You remember this in the Homicide Hunters, where he actually tells the detectives like, hey, I was just at a bar listening to her marital troubles. Right? What did (laughs) Kinda
1: say? He was like, yeah, sure. Because- Men go to bars and hang out with beautiful women so they can be their marital counselor. Yeah, like like,
0: he was proud of himself on that one too. As the conversation progressed, he admitted that he had wanted something more out of their relationship with Mona and that the two of them began sleeping together. He was with Mona the Saturday night before her murder and claimed that they had spent most of the day on Sunday together at its home. And when Mona said she needed to go home that night, he drove her there and dropped her off at around 5.30 p.m. He then went home and hung out with his neighbors until 10 30 or 11 p.m., which the detectives were able to verify was true. My neighbors are 100 years old. Yeah. <laughs> You've seen them, they're both old. There's an ambulance on my road 15 times a day. So, who <laughs> hangs out with their neighbors?
1: I used to. We used to live in a really um, a cool neighborhood, and the neighbors were all really fun, and they would get like, they would grill out, you know, and they would invite everybody over, and it was kind of like, really it was just like two of them, the people that were right next door to us and then the people that were right across the street. And they were older, not like old, but they were like my parents' age and they loved to see my, um, my kid. Well, I only had one at the time, but they like really loved my son and like thought he was just so cute and whatever. So it was just kind of like that. But they were always like inviting us over for dinners and everybody, you know, all of us would kind of get together. But now I don't really have neighbors that are close to me and, um, The ones I've met, I I wouldn't
0: really want to hang out with. So, (laughs) By the time this recording goes to air, there's a good chance one of my neighbors will be dead. They they are barely hanging on. Do you remember when the eclipse happened and you brought those glasses? Uh Yeah, they were super excited about that. And they were very careful with their eyes, which I kind of thought like – You'll be dead any minute. Just what are live. you? Just, Just live. a little. <laughs> Enjoy this. Burn your retinas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got like a weak top, so I don't know what you're <laughs> waiting for. They're lovely. I love them. They're wonderful, but they will be dead soon. Back to the story, the detectives were still suspicious of Wayne and felt that he would have had plenty of time to commit the murders and then return home to hang out with his neighbors. Because remember, there's that one thirty to 8.30 right. window, and he fits right in the middle of well, that. Also, and let's face the facts, it
1: doesn't take a long period of time to shoot someone and then leave. So I can right. see how they would be like, yeah, you still could have done it. Just because you were at home and hung out with your neighbors doesn't mean that you didn't do anything.
0: And you already placed yourself there. Right. You've already said that you've, you're have you at the place of the crime. Since they didn't have anything solid to prove his guilt, they let Wayne go and they went back to the crime scene to search for any evidence that they may have overlooked that could possibly tie Wayne to the crime. When they got to the house for the second time, detectives noticed a receipt from a key service hanging on the fridge. It was dated a few days prior to the murders, and the work order stated that all the locks on the house had been changed. This piqued Kenda's interest, and he tracked down the locksmith who did the job to ask if he remembered anything about it. The locksmith told him that Mona was having problems with her husband and that she seemed scared of him and wanted the locks on her house changed. It was a typical job for him. Which is terrifying. Right. How many women are calling you and saying, hey, my husband is scaring me, can we change the locks? And you're like, just another day. But- yeah,
1: but what other reasons are there? I guess if you move into a new place and you want to change them, that would be one reason. But what other reasons do people have to have all the locks on their house changed other than to keep someone out that they already had a key to the other locks, right?
0: Okay, good point. Okay, thank you.
1: <laughs> Ray quickly moved back to the top of the list as a suspect, and the detectives paid a visit to his employer, ICG Electric, where they spoke to his boss and learned that he was an excellent worker, just as his father had said. He never missed a day of work, and he was always on time. He had recently requested some time off of work to get his life in order and had told his boss that he was going through some marital problems. When detectives asked when Ray was supposed to be returning to work, they were told that he was actually supposed to be back that day. But when they tried to reach him on the dispatch radio, they got no response. So his boss was just as dumbfounded as the detectives and said it was very strange and very unlike Ray, and he really didn't have an explanation for why he would have bailed on his job after all these years of being such a faithful employee. Right. He told the detectives that Ray had been staying with his brother and provided the address for the police to look into. When Robert King answered the door at the home, he told the detectives that Ray had been staying there off and on and that the home wasn't actually his. When Robert King answered the door at the home, He told the detectives that Ray had been staying there off and on and that the home wasn't actually his, but that he had been house-sitting for a friend named Herbert Ritchie. When he was asked about the state of Ray and Mona's marriage, he said that he knew the couple was having some problems and that Ray wanted Mona to go to counseling, but she didn't want to go. He told the detectives that neither he nor Ray owned any guns, but that the homeowner of the house was a gun collector with an extensive assortment downstairs in the basement.
0: The detectives were able to contact Herbert Ritchie by phone to ask if he owned any 22 caliber guns, and he told them that he actually owned two Smith and Wesson Model 17 revolvers, each held seven 22 caliber rounds. Immediately, Kenda thought that that supported his original theory about two guns being used in the murders, and he asked Herbert for permission to go downstairs and investigate the gun collection. Sure enough, the two revolvers were missing from the gun cabinets, which meant that Ray was now the prime suspect in the murders. They asked Robert if he had any idea where they might be able to find Ray, and they were given an address to a property in Black Forest, which was just outside of Colorado Springs. Ray had purchased this a few years prior and intended to build a home on the land, but he would occasionally go there to hang out, I guess. <laughs> to watch the wind blow by, like maybe just to like say this is my property. Yay. <laughs> what do you have? A vision board out there? I don't really understand. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, hey, he wanted to have a life there. Maybe it was just a place of comfort and serenity. my gosh.
0: (laughs) Just no. Just don't (laughs) do that. Don't have comfort or serenity. (laughs) In my life, I try to have neither, and it's going really well. I am succeeding constantly. Kenda feared that Ray may have gone there, and in an unstable frame of mind, he may have killed himself. So they put an all-points bulletin out on Ray and raced to the Black Forest property. When they arrived, they realized that Ray was not there, and it didn't appear he had been there recently. They continued their search overnight and into the next day. So that next day, a Colorado State Patrol officer radioed in that they had
1: found Ray, and they had a state trooper uh, behind him, and they were about to pull him over. So Ray did not attempt to flee, and he did not resist the officers when they caught up with him. They were able to arrest him without any incident, and they found the two revolvers in the truck, as well as 30 live rounds of ammunition in his pockets and $700 in cash. When they got him to the station, they realized that Ray's cowboy boots still had dried blood on the outside edges of the soles. So, of course, they're like, We got him, you know, obviously. So, I'm wondering
0: if Detective Kinda is this good, or if he (laughs) runs into a lot of these things like, Oh, where's the guy? Somebody talked to her at a bar? Sure, he's sitting over here. You know. That's just really, really good luck. Kendra, maybe you have just good luck. Maybe. I'm going to call him good luck Chuck. That doesn't make sense. No. I can't do that. (laughs) I got to find a new dead person I can take his name for. Okay. You think on that. I'm going to keep working on it.
1: In the interrogation room, Ray was emotionally bankrupt and spaced out. He wouldn't make eye contact with the officers and seemed like he just wasn't quite there. I would hope not after what has happened. I mean, I would hope he wouldn't just be like, hey, it's a great day. <laughs> you oh, know? not singing Amazing Grace yeah. and doing cartwheels? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is a nice change of pace. Right. So he told his story of what he claimed had happened on the day of the murders, and he said that he never intended to kill his wife or her sister, but that he took the guns with him in an effort to scare Mona into talking to him. Good Lord. Because that's what you do when you want someone to speak to you and have a rational adult conversation. You show guns.
0: Yeah. Please get back with me. Also, look what I brought. Just in case this situation goes south, I don't get I don't either. I don't either. Uh,
1: He says that he intended to shoot himself, but when he took the gun out and threatened suicide, Carla, who was there by herself, uh, tried to wrestle the gun away from him, and in the struggle, the gun went off, and she was shot. He claimed that she begged him to shoot her more so that she would not suffer, which Joe Kenda and I also believe is extremely far-fetched and completely untrue. After he accidentally...
0: No one can see you doing air quotes, Mandy. Well, they
1: could hear it in my voice, hopefully. <laughs> um, after he accidentally shot Carla, he had planned to shoot himself, but then Mona walked in the front door, and he allegedly is zoned out and doesn't remember shooting her. This poor man is a victim. Right. Of he course. Is a victim of all, all these terrible. things happening to him. So Detective Kenda wasn't buying the story, and he believed that Ray had a clear intent to kill the women, as evidenced by the fact that he brought two guns and 50 rounds of ammunition. You don't just bring all that when you want to scare someone. Right. He believed that Ray had gone to the home, possibly not expecting Carla to be there, but killed her anyways, and then waited for Mona to get home. He unloaded the empty rounds from the gun and set them on the stereo cabinet, reloaded, and then fired on Mona as soon as she walked through the front door.
0: Ray was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. In the trial, more details of the murders came out and proved that Ray had a clear motive and intent to kill his wife. Ray had been extremely upset about the marital issues that he and Mona were having. He took off one week in early March and with his father and daughter, drove to Kansas to meet with Mona's parents. He was distraught and expressed that he did not want to get a divorce from Mona. I'm sure that helps the situation by like begging your in-laws to not let this happen.
1: I mean, I guess if you feel like you're like not getting through to your wife or like, you know, you might want to talk to her parents and be like, maybe you can talk it to her or like, you know, I don't know. I don't know what he was hoping to accomplish with that.
0: I do understand that. And you think maybe if they had a good relationship, there could be some sort of a conversation, but it can also be taken as that got a little crazy and leave my family out of it. He was distraught and expressed that he did not want to get a divorce from Mona. Upon his return to Colorado, Ray learned that Mona had spent the weekend with Wayne Lewis and he took another week off work so that he could consult an attorney about getting a divorce and obtaining custody of his daughter. Somebody had some PTO lined up.
1: Yeah, how do you, I know. Well, it sounded like he
0: didn't really take vacations up to this point, so maybe he did. During the weekend of March 23rd through 24th of 1985, Ray had custody of the child and was supposed to return her to Mona on that Sunday. However, that morning, he instead dropped the little girl off at his parents' house in Pueblo, Colorado before stealing the guns and ammo from Herbert Ritchie's home and driving his brother's blue pickup truck to Mona's. So much happening in that sentence. Yes. There's a lot, (laughs) lots of people all over the place and guns and snowbirds, whatever. Neighbors confirmed that they saw the blue pickup truck there that day. When Ray failed to pick his daughter up from his parents to return her to Mona, Cecil became concerned and that's when he decided to drive to the house the next day where he saw the body in the kitchen and called the police.
1: The defense retained a psychiatrist who evaluated Ray's mental state on several different occasions. Dr. Ingram testified that Ray was suffering from an emotional overload and severe depression over the state of his marriage and the custody of his child, and that he had intended to kill himself, but then turned his suicidal impulses into homicidal actions against the two women. I don't know how you go from one extreme to the other like that. Right. Um, He believed that it was unlikely that Ray had planned to kill them that day. Um, But the doctor was not allowed to present any evidence of what Ray said to him during their sessions because the statements he made were self-serving and, of course, they would be considered hearsay and would only serve to confuse the jury. So Ray was found guilty on two counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to two consecutive life sentences.
0: So I would kind of agree with the psychiatrist. I don't know that he actually went there intending to kill them. I think he was upset. He brought that just in case. But just in case what? In case he was going to kill him. But I don't think he was intending to go there and shoot both of them. What does he gain from shooting the sister? I don't think he gains
1: Well, anything. I think he was angry at the sister because if it wasn't mm. for her moving in and introducing his wife to these, you know, ways of going out partying at nightclubs and stuff, then, like, I I, I think it's possible that he fa- felt that it was her fault that any of this mm. was happening and that any of their problems were happening because, because of the fact that the sister who was recently divorced and partying a lot was encouraging Mona to do the same thing.
0: Maybe had a case of FOMO from all the YOLO that was going on (laughs) in their lives. No, no, I could see that happening as well. So before we close everything out this week, we
1: are, of course, going to do our... Last thing before we go,
0: you got it right, Mandy. Yeah. I'm so proud of you.
1: And we have some um, Easter slash April Fools themed ones today. Since uh, whenever you guys hear this, we will have just passed those two things.
0: We haven't learned enough to do this like a week in advance. I know <laughs> the,
1: we are the worst.
0: <laughs> it's always a scare so, too.
1: Right. So at this point, you guys should all be um, binging on Easter candy, Absolutely. which is why this first one is perfect. Um, yeah. This one came from Becky L in our Facebook group, and she wanted. Us to talk about what our favorite Easter candy is. So Melissa, what are you going to put on for this topic? We're going to actually do two of these today.
0: Should I do one minute? Just do a one minute. Okay. I mean, how, many, you go how many
1: minutes do you need to talk about candy? Are you <laughs> asking me that as a for real question? <laughs> All right. Put one minute on the clock. Melissa. Ready? And Go. go. What's no, yours? you go. Oh, me? No. Yeah. Okay. So my favorite is. Uh, this is so awful. I hate chocolate, so I'm not. I'm Easter is not my holiday. Who are you? I know. It doesn't even make any sense. I can tell you my least favorite is the little malt balls. Ugh. Ooh. Okay. Ugh. I, awful. I, I think you're wrong. Um, so I guess if I have to choose, I just like the. I really like non-Easter like. Can't, I don't like the little eggs. I don't like any of that. I would just give me Sour Patch Kids. Give me anything like that. What is
0: wrong with you?
1: (laughs) Give me um, Skittles inside of an Easter egg. I don't want any M&Ms. I don't want any Reese's Cups. I don't want any of that. Okay. This is
0: just heartbreaking information (laughs) to hear. So skip everything she just said. Just skip the first 30 seconds of this. It was garbage. It was just garbage. (laughs) So all you need for Easter to have a good Easter basket is Cadbury eggs. Don't give me the caramel – I mean, don't give me the weird, like, oh, let's be funky and do something fun for Easter. Give me real, authentic, big Cadbury eggs. Give me 100 of them, and basically I'll give you my soul. I don't have anything to lose. That was our timer because Mandy spoke 35 freaking seconds on <laughs> Sour Patch Kids as an Easter candy. I am so shook right now. This is don't be not shook. okay. do need to unshake yourself. Is that what the <laughs> youths are saying? I think so. I don't even know shooketh. how to use it. I'm shooketh. <laughs> There's a gif I love to use. You can't do that, Melissa. I will do as I do. So
1: the second last thing before we go question was uh, from Katie N, also in our Facebook group, and she suggested that we talk about what are the worst April Fool's Day pranks that you have either happened to us or I guess that we've even heard of. So one minute on the clock, Melissa.
0: Okay. I am going to start this. Well, I'll let you start it because I need to – I'm giving us two minutes. I'm sorry. I don't care. You um, just need to continue on and on and on. After you wasted my time with Sour Patch Kids, I'm taking two minutes. Fine. All right. Ready? Okay. Go.
1: So no one has really pranked me that bad on April Fool's Day, oh thankfully. Um, But I think like ugh, the old classic replacing the sugar with salt thing, that would make me so mad. I am really lame. I don't do pranks and I don't like pranks being pulled on me. So – Thank you to everyone in my life who has never pranked
0: me. All I want to do is prank you now. This doesn't don't, even sound Yeah. No, I'm don't. going to. <laughs> Here's the thing. I'm not a huge prankster. My daughter and I have like taped the water faucet so when my husband turns it on, it sprays him in the face. Now that April Fool's and Easter comes together, you can do like the candy that you don't like, throw it away, I guess, and put grapes, wrap it – grapes in like Easter candy, like – you know, the little eggs wrap the oh, yeah. things around it. That would make
1: people oh, – it would make I have, you happy. I know. You know, um one of our other listeners, Farron, she posted in a group that we're in together uh, this trick where um, they dip Brussels sprouts in chocolate and wrap them and make it look like it's like a candy – like a cake pop. Oh.
0: <laughs> that is evil and nobody should it's do so that. It's so evil. I know. Well, thankfully – um, probably like it. <laughs> I'm not that crazy. <laughs> this is not helping your case. So here's the most upsetting thing I've read the entire week, and it came from our Facebook group. Paula, dear, dear Paula, somebody <laughs> posted about – our Josh from our group, he posted people putting, like, um, donuts and, like, filling them with mayonnaise and how terrible that would be as an April Fool's joke. Paula said, and I have – quote, because this has ruined my day. She said, don't judge me, but like, I'd be surprised to bite into mayo, but I'm not sure I'd be mad about it. (laughs) What are you doing with your life right now, Paula? I'm very concerned about you. I like mayo as much as the next person, except for people that are weird that don't like it. I love mayo. In a donut. Not in a donut. I don't care if you're surprised. You should be shocked. You should be (laughs) revolted. Yes, you should burn the whole place down. I don't condone burning things down but (laughs) mayo and a donut burn that down to the floor okay guys (laughs) i think it's getting more and more out of control it is it It is is. (laughs) i hope you guys have turned it off at this point so um have a great week we will see you next week check out our patreon page patreon.com slash moms and murder podcast find our threadless store threadless.com slash moms and murder Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the places.
1: And don't forget to um, review us on iTunes. We love new reviews and it really well, helps us out. We love most new reviews. Well, if you're still listening to our show at this point, I hope <laughs> that you're leaving a good review. I hope the bad ones have already shut it off. Yeah. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know. If you hate giggling, it's okay. Turn it off. Yeah. Go away. Yeah. Go and be unhappy. You don't have We're to okay. sit through it. You don't have to. We, we are not going to put your finger on that iTunes button. You don't have to write a single thing. Nope. I'll, I'll believe that you didn't like it. It's okay. Right. I it's agree. okay. Go eat a mayonnaise-filled donut and have a great kind of day.
1: <laughs> That's like the worst insult. I know. Go eat a mayonnaise-filled donut. Yeah. Sure. All right, guys. We are done here. <laughs> have a great week. Bye. One of today's sponsors is True Crime Magazine. And for our listeners, they are giving away 100 two-year subscriptions for only $20. That's a $100 value. And for the next 48 hours, they're slipping two more best-selling true crime publications worth $139.99 into all ultimate bundles with little to no additional cost. Head over to thecrimemag.com slash special to learn more.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.